0: Hi, it's Fraser here. If you're a regular listener to this podcast or a regular reader of Spiked, I hope you'll agree that Spiked's message is more necessary than ever. Spiked's content is free and it always will be. It's thanks to your donations and regular donations in particular that we've been able to keep going and growing. By donating to Spiked, you're helping us challenge the myriad attacks on free speech and the illiberalism of identity politics. The Spike podcast has now grown to a point where we're able to get sponsorship. What that means for you is that there's another way you can support the show by checking out some of the deals we're able to pass your way. But donations are still by far the best and most direct way to support us. So if you think we're doing something right, saying what needs to be said, challenging what needs to be challenged, then do please consider starting a regular donation if you haven't already. Even £5 per month can go a long way. If you'd like to make a donation, you can do that by going to spikes-online.com and hitting the red donate button in the top right corner. That's spikes-online.com and the red donate button in the top right corner. Now, on with the show. Hello and welcome to the Spikes podcast. I'm Fraser Myers and joining me this week, as ever, we have Spikes deputy editor, Tom Slater. Hello. And Spiked columnist, Ella Whelan. Hi. Coming up on the show, The Russia Report free speech and civil rights, and Islamophobia.
1: The revolt reveals that no one in government knew if Russia interfered in or sought to influence the referendum because they did not want to know. It is the stick as horse
2: poop Brexit voters who are coming down for,
1: for Vladimir Putin. There's a lot of Russian money sloshing around London. and Andy Wigmore, are you Russian agents? Well, I'm still waiting for the check for President Putin.
0: A long-awaited report into Russian meddling in British politics was finally published this week. In particular, there was a huge amount of anticipation about what it would say about the 2016 EU referendum. In the end, the report provided no evidence of Russian interference in the Brexit vote. But that didn't stop some hardcore Remainers claiming that it did. One Labour MP said the referendum result was no longer valid and it needed to be rerun. The report also describes the Russian state as fundamentally nihilistic and
2: set on sowing discord
0: and confusion. Tom, what are your thoughts on this?
2: Well, I think the response to the report really showed how conspiratorial these anti-Brexit, Russian-obsessed people are. I mean, it's like that kind of cliche about how the lack of evidence of a conspiracy proves that conspiracy exists, Mm. given the fact that the report, even though it's been much anticipated, you know, potentially going to be the smoking gun that proved that russian bots swung the leave referendum it presented no new evidence of effective russian meddling basically just represented the quite thin stuff that we've had so far it even made a point of saying that it would be difficult if not impossible to assess whether or not these things had any impact and yet this doesn't seem to have dented the narrative whatsoever you know the argument seems to be coming from the top of the labor party as much as it is from the fbpe nutcases which is the reason there's no evidence is because no one has investigated it which is i suppose could be true in some sort of ways but you could say that about almost anything. You you know, you could say the reason there's no evidence that, you know, the Queen is a lizard, as one David Icke claims, is because no one's bothered to look into it. So it's, it's a completely circular argument. And it's been interesting how they've tried to move the goalposts since. So even before the report came out, you saw Carol Cadwallader, the Observer's Chief Conspiracy Theorist, saying, of course, we don't expect there to be too much in it. And you've seen a shift towards talking about the influence of the money of wealthy Russian individuals, which seems a pretty unsophisticated discussion that seems to make no distinction between just a rich Russian-British citizen um, and someone actually with more nefarious intent linked to the Kremlin. But I think it's just really striking that so many people are still kind of trying to hold on to this, trying to suggest that even though things are a bit murky, that the dots can still be connected. And I think it's just been incredibly ironic and actually pretty shameless that you now have this discussion about why didn't the government or the security services have a grip on protecting our democracy when these people by using this conspiracy theory, have been inflicting far more damage on UK democracy over the course of the past four years. You have individuals who are claiming that they can't trust in our democratic institutions when they were actively trying to subvert those over the course of the Brexit process. You know, whether it was calling in the unelected House of Lords to block the vote, or whether it was actually trying to elicit the assistance of the European Union and trying to scupper the negotiations. Like, it's Mm. just really quite remarkable how shameless these people are. Not only are they clinging to a conspiracy theory, which is once again unravelled, but they're also trying to pose as the warriors of democracy, given the fact that they spent the past four years trying to completely undermine the biggest vote in our history. All this we knew, but it's been brought into sharp relief again, I think, this week.
0: Ella
3: there's an article out today in The Guardian by Owen Jones in which he says, makes the point, it's very easy to blame Putin when actually the fact is that you might have to face up to the idea that some people in this country didn't want to agree with you politically. But of course, he then moves from that quite swiftly into saying, well, actually, the really big player here is Facebook or the Murdoch Mm. press. And, you know, never mind Putin, it's Twitter trolls and (laughs) social media adverts that swing people. And it's very frustrating because in a completely other context, these people will be celebrating how brilliant the Labour Party's online social media campaign was for reaching people during an election, or how effective it is to do online activism for people who can't get out on the streets. And it's just so ridiculous to suggest that the only way people make their political decisions is either through reading newspapers or watching adverts on The internet or being drilled in by Russian bots. Because what's underneath it is just a completely shallow and insulting view of the public. Because really what they're not saying is everyone is subject to these pressures and we all all are slaves to influence from the Murdoch press. What they're really saying is there's a certain section of society, Brexit voters, working class, thick idiots, all that stuff that we've heard for years, who are unable to make up their own minds because they are not as intellectually capable as us. So it doesn't take very long to strip away all the bullshit and get to the bias behind this and the prejudice. And the point that I've been making to people for a very long time at this point is, look, even if you came out to me tomorrow and showed me a dossier of proof that Russia was behind the Brexit vote, which I don't think is forthcoming, the thing that's been more important has been the argument post the vote in which faced with the allegation that they were swayed by Russian influence or whatever else vast numbers of the public came out and said actually no we did want this and they voted again and again in favor of it through general elections and by other means to prove that their vote was something that they took seriously even if something did go on in 2016 that's sort of by the by by now we've moved on from that and you would hope that some of these kind of mental anti-Brexit people would learn how to move on as well. And
0: of course, I mean, the, the wider context is as well. It is fascinating how Russia has become the object of all of these campaigns, not just in the UK, of course, but in the, in the US, the hopes of the, the Hillaryites, I guess, were all pinned on impeachment because of Trump's now found to be non-existent connections to Russia. And there's also a commonality with this Russia report because one of the names, one of the expert witnesses that the Intelligence Committee used was a certain Christopher Steele, who is now infamous for his Steele dossier, which basically alleged that it's the one of the famous P-tape where... President Trump is accused of urinating on a certain bed that was once slept in by the Obamas. Now, this is completely untrue, but used, you know, Steele's name to basically bolster a, just a nasty rumor. Ironically, it was only last week that Steele was sued successfully um, over the contents of this dossier because he basically hadn't verified it. But that's the person giving our MPs intelligence on on the state of Russia. Some of the other names as well are, are also you know quite interesting, like Anne Applebaum, who's a, you know well known. Cold Warrior. The same with Christopher Donnelly. It's similarly a veteran of the of the old Cold War. Bill Browder, who has successfully lobbied the UK government to adopt a Magnitsky Act, you know, putting sanctions on basically Russian oligarchs with connections to the Putin regime. You know, so he's someone who knows a lot about influencing the political process and lobbying in the UK. <laughs> Why is that not seen as a, a as an issue? I think what's most bizarre, and you you alluded to this earlier, Tom, is that there is obviously you know lots of money sloshing around. London and there's lots of money being given to political parties, particularly the Conservative Party. It's, it's true. There are Russian businessmen paying a hundred grand here and there to have dinner with Theresa May or tennis with Boris Johnson. But the assumption always is that because they're Russian, they must be acting on behalf of the Russian state rather than engaging in the kind of normal low level corruption that we expect British and other business people to engage in. It's probably more likely that they're interested in loosening some regulation rather than, you know, acting on behalf of Putin and the,
2: and the Kremlin. Tom, do you want to come back? Just it was so striking because you're seeing in the press now kind of long profiles of this rich Russian person who you know played tennis with Boris Johnson or played chess with Gavin Williamson, whatever it is that it happens to be. There's never any suggestion that they're some sort of agent of the Kremlin, that they have direct Mm. links. But as you say, there's just this broader kind of Russophobic sort of atmosphere which has been brought up around this, which I think is quite striking. I just wanted to come back to that point you made about people like Christopher Steele and it's just really striking how over the course of Russiagate, both its US and UK iterations, is how people who made completely bonkers claims, pushed, you know, conspiracy theories, pushed fake news effectively, have paid no price for these things completely unravelling. If you think about some of the things that were said over the course of the past few years about people like Aaron Banks, you know, Aaron Banks of Leave.eu, he was referred to the National Crime Agency over how he made his £8 million donation to Leave.eu, suggestions that he did it improperly via these shell companies and holding companies, and the speculation, or the implication of a lot of the reporting around that time, was that potentially Russia was a factor in this as well, because he'd had these meetings with the Russian ambassador, there was a deal he might have done but didn't end up doing in relation to gold or something like this. It was pretty much just being asserted that potentially that there was some dodgy dealings going on here. And of course, at the end of last year, the NCA found that he was the source of this money and that he had not committed any crime. Again, there's kind of no price for these kinds of conspiracy theories being put forward. And it's interesting because he actually is mentioned in the Russia report, but only in one footnote, <laughs> which just references him kind of by the by. And if you think about all the other things that have been claimed over recent years, you know, again, what was it, last year when this story came out about Dominic Cummings spending a few years as a young man in Moscow, David Lammy, who is now back on the front bench of the Labour Party, just tweeted, is Dominic Cummings a Russian spy? Mm. <laughs> they indulged in the most incredible, lunatic kind of conspiracy theorising, and yet they've only seemingly been rewarded. You know, Carol Cradwall got the Orwell Prize, David Lammy's back in frontline politics, and I think that's really quite striking. And just finally on the point, elements, which I think is really important, which is how all of this really does express their contempt for voters, because... Even though the evidence for Russian meddling in the Brexit referendum is pretty thin, I mean, the tech companies looked into this in 2017 and Facebook only found three adverts (laughs) linked to known Russian-funded accounts. um, And I think they reached something like 200 people. Other reports have found more stuff. But nevertheless, if you look at what they're claiming, it's like quite unsophisticated memes. (laughs) Things like this, really, is what they're alleging has actually had a huge impact on the referendum results. So even though they've kind of dug themselves into these conspiratorial rabbit holes, the reason that they were plunged into that in the first place was because of this disorientation that Brexit and then later Trump caused them. The fact that they had to find this explanation other than people didn't actually agree with them. But again, underpinning all of that was just how little faith they had in people to the point where they thought a pretty naff meme put out by a bot account was what won it for leave, which has always been a ridiculous proposition on the face of it.
0: At the moment, I'm really enjoying the course An Economic History of the World Since 1400. I've been listening to it on The Great Courses Plus. So often you find that when we talk about history, the focus is on politics, society and culture, and for no bad reason, but we tend to overlook the things that actually occupied most people for most of the time, as they either conquered new lands in search of plunder or toiled in factories to survive. This course gives you a fascinating overview of how we went from subsistence living to colonisation, all the way to the modern world of globalisation and tech, so I would definitely recommend checking it out. I'm excited to tell you about The Great Courses Plus because I know you'll love it too. This streaming service has an extensive course library where you can educate yourself on nearly any topic imaginable. You can enhance your cooking skills, better understand your finances, improve your response to stress and anxiety, and so much more. All of the content is objective and fact-based, It's easy to access anytime, anywhere with the Great Courses Plus app. You can stream from your phone, your desktop, or even your smart TV. So, don't wait any longer. Sign up for The Great Courses Plus today. I've arranged for all Spiked podcast listeners to get a full month of unlimited access for free. To start your free month trial, sign up today using our special URL. Go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash spiked. Remember, thegreatcoursesplus.com slash spiked. The Black Lives Matter movement has been accompanied with a wave of censorship and cancellations. Old, supposedly offensive films and television shows have been pulled from the archives. People have lost their jobs for questioning any aspect of the movement – Major companies are staging an advertising boycott of Facebook until it gets a handle on hate speech. It's now widely assumed that censorship is a useful tool in challenging bigotry and racism, but radicals didn't always think that way. In fact, the civil rights movement of the 1950s and 1960s was intimately linked to the struggle for free speech. Kevin Newell is joining us down the line for this section. He teaches American Studies at the University of Sunderland. Kevin, um... You've wrote about this for Spiked recently. Can you tell us how the struggles for free speech and civil rights go hand in hand?
1: Well, yes. I mean, I think what people forget about the struggle in the 1960s is it was for civil rights. It was for universal rights. And that they saw that freedom of speech was the most important element to argue for, for a powerless group of people. So many people forget that, for instance, the civil rights movement of Martin Luther King and of the other various organizations of SNCC, the SNCC, and of CORE, and all of these organizations were actually really relying upon the whole idea of free speech. Because, of course, it was cracked down upon in the South and it was Southerners who denied free speech and free assembly and free basic rights. So in fact, you find there's an emphasis on freedom in the early civil rights movements in the 50s and 60s, rather than on equality. Tom? No, I think this is a really
2: important point And I thought Kevin's piece really made this argument really strongly, because um, there is a lot of historical literacy around the s- state of free speech and a lack of recognition of how important it is to civil rights struggles and struggles for equality more broadly. I think it's also one of the things that um, Kevin highlighted in that piece was the point that also people who believe in free speech have a lot to thank the civil rights movement for, conversely as well, mm. insofar as it was those cases fighting for their right to organise, pushing back against libel actions, etc, which really gave the First Amendment in the US the, the teeth that it has today, um, given it was in such a poor shape after McCarthyism and everything else. And I think it's been interesting this week as well with the death of John Lewis, a giant of the civil rights movement, Kevin Wright, a very moving obituary to him on spite this week. The sort of contrast you see generationally between the civil rights leaders and and the new anti-racist movements of today, first of all, on that question of freedom of speech, as we've been talking about so far, but also on some of the questions of historical memory statues. In the wake of Lewis's death, there's been a campaign to rename the Edmund Pettus Bridge, which was the site of Bloody Sunday in 1965. You know, the the march in Selma where Lewis himself and many other marchers were attacked pretty brutally by the police. And there's been this campaign to rename it after Lewis himself. And there's a kind of irony there, as Sean Collins pointed out on Spike this week, given the fact that about five years ago, he himself wrote an op-ed with another Alabama congresswoman, actually rebuffing attempts then to rename the bridge making the point that you need to embrace history both the good and the bad and also pointing to the kind of wonderful irony of the fact that the Edmund Pettus Bridge which is named after a Confederate general and a member of the Ku Klux Klan no less has now become a huge symbol of the struggle for civil rights and i think that's something which is is a bit of a generational difference i think it one of the thing it gets to and we've talked about it a bit on this podcast recently is the fact that the other thing that the civil rights movement had was not just a belief in free speech but also a belief in progress and i think that kind of being more comfortable with history goes hand in hand with a belief that you know other possibilities are are possible, that you can change society, that it hasn't just been this kind of undifferentiated horror for the past few hundred years that people through struggle have overcome things. And I think that's another interesting kind of marked difference that we see between those generations.
0: Yeah, Kevin, I wonder if you could speak a little bit about that, especially the attitude to progress, because it seems as if, you know, one of the focuses of Black Lives Matter is that nothing has changed. You know, people are still victims of history, including, you know, very old history, back to the days of slavery, not just recent history.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, there's a few problems there. First of all, slavery has nothing to do with the modern problems that African Americans face in the United States, the modern racism. Slavery is almost entirely unrelated, except in a sort of symbolic sense, where you have the, you know, the Confederate generals and all of the, the various different statuary and, and various different celebrations. And so, you know, symbolically it means something, but generally race theories in the United States were not really popularized before the end of the 19th century, despite the fact that they existed elsewhere. Strangely enough, in the United States, they were quite slow to take off. And it was really from 1896 that you can see that that's when it took off. And there's this idea that there's this great long continuous oppression that has been unchanging. And that there has always been this idea of whiteness that is also unchanging. And this is just simply historically inaccurate. Whiteness really didn't come to mean anything. You know, there was white in the in the 1790 Naturalization Act, where it said that all people who are free white and have a good character were able to come to the United States to be citizens. So there is some reference to that but really it doesn't take on any real meaning until the 20th century. So for instance, in the 1890s, you have a long series of cases where Japanese were suing to be included as whites and were successful. And so you had a whole bunch of court cases coming through the early part of the 20th century whereby Armenians and Syrians, and there was a great debate where Uh, who can become American and who can't be. So whiteness really wasn't settled until I would argue 23, 24. 23, there was an Ozawa case, which once and for all settled that Japanese could not be considered white. Sorry, that was 22. And in 23, then there was a case with Bhagat Singh, Supreme Court case also, which decided that nobody from Asia could be American. So you had That sense of whiteness didn't really come into that. And not only that, at that particular time, African Americans were included in this from the 1870s onwards. They were included in the Naturalization Act. So there's a great historical issue. Jim Crow didn't really take off until 1896, despite the fact that it refers to a character from earlier in the 19th century. So it's really Jim Crow laws actually peaked in the 1930s during the reign of the supposedly very liberal President Franklin Delano Roosevelt. So I think that's one of the problems is it's, it's this sort of continuitarianism that everything's continued right through. And in actual fact, you know, anti-black prejudice really has was ramping up during the 20th century and then was confronted by the civil rights movement in the 1950s and 60s. There's your potted history lesson. <laughs> Ella.
3: The difficult thing about the discussion around free speech today is that it's very hard to get people to realise or admit actually how much more sensitive about issues of race they are today than they were say 30 or 40 years ago when the world was a much more difficult place for black people and you have to take a kind of absolutist view of certainly of free speech in order to fight these arguments. And you quote that brilliant line from Frederick Douglass, liberty for all or chains for all in your article, Kevin. But behind the kind of the practical elements of how you defend free speech, the thing that always fascinates me is this idea of why people are so willing to paint themselves as victims today. I like looking back to, for example, the Black Panther movement in contrast to Black Lives Matters. And while that movement at its time had its issues, and we can talk about that a- another time, the tactics behind the Black Panther movement was all centred around an idea of black power and a- centred around an idea of, you're not going to push me around and I'm not going to take this shit, basically. And in contrast today, the Black Lives Matter movement seems to be centered around. Please validate me. Please move aside, white man, uh, to give me space. It's the kind of victim politics that we see in lots of other areas of contemporary LGBT movements or feminist politics. And it just does absolutely nothing for the people who claim to be fighting against injustice. Because if you are arguing that you're beginning your political (laughs) expression from a position of weakness, you know, I am so utterly pathetic that I can't even be in the same presence as an inanimate object like a statue without feeling threatened. Then why the hell are the, you know, quote unquote oppressors supposed to be afraid enough of you to move aside? Reading books like Seize the Time by Bobby Seal, a member of the Black Panther movement, it's like being in a different world because the kind of language that they used about very real prejudice was just so much more positive. It was so much more open to the belief that they were going to create a different world and they weren't going to stand for any nonsense. And today it feels like if you look at the kind of literature around, for example, Black Lives Matter or most of these sort of letters and petitions that go out trying to ban stuff, it's all about how Absolutely impossibly bad the world is, and how it's really actually difficult to change it. You're never going to get rid of white privilege. You just have to manage a way to get white people to stay silent for a little while. So that's the thing that always really fascinates and frustrates me most is that, you know, in a time in which the world isn't perfect, still needs a lot of changing, but things have gotten better, it feels like a younger generation of anti racist activists are even more defeatist than people who faced real difficulty in the past.
1: Yes. What the genius of John Lewis was, is that he came from that period whereby there was actually a transformative... You know, they were trying to right the American wrongs that had happened. And they believed that they could actually do it. As Martin Luther King said, the arc of the universe is long, but it bends towards justice. They actually thought that we were all moving in the right side. And that's why I love that quote from John Lewis, about how people who think that there's been no change walk in my shoes. You'll have seen change. And it it is it is a shame. I mean, the whole Black Lives Matter movement and most of the, the activity that I've seen seems to have little to do with African-Americans. And you get the feeling that there's these great, you know, forgiveness and all this therapeutic thing going. And then whites go back to their nice suburban house and blacks go back to the ghetto. And, you know, in which case, they were at similar levels economically to w- white americans as they were in the 1950s so all of all of this sort of, sort of sound and fury hasn't really affected anything economically and sadly that that's really where the catch up needs to be done for for me i'm not quite as much of a fan of the black panthers in some ways because they were already slightly defeatist in in sort of saying we don't need any to get any white people on side and and that always strikes me as, as the real problem. It's a political problem, and yet it's being treated as something that's sort of, in, you know, in bureaucracies and, and psychology of whites and individual kind of problems, and yet it's a political problem. And I always look back to the Kerner Report in 1968, it was released, and it called for massive structural changes. Now, it, it you know, raising the ghettos and, and various different really big impactful kind of things to do. It's almost like the high point of American liberalism. And had that managed to get a political campaign behind it, then I think real changes would have happened. But what's happened is that no political campaign has been got hold of. It's been divorced from sort of a democratic debate. Race has been just used as a sort of bludgeon to hit people with rather than an actual way that we can actually go forward and create a political campaign that would be necessary to actually begin resolving it.
0: I just want to tell you a bit about Stitch Fix. Stitch Fix is an online personal styling service for men and women. An expert stylist picks clothes just for you based on your taste, size and price preferences and sends them straight to your door. It's perfect if you want to discover something new or have someone do the hard work of shopping for you. So how does it work? It's easy and fun. You fill out a style profile about your clothing preferences, including how much you'd like to pay. Then it's over to your stylist, who'll hand-select and send you five items of clothing and accessories in your preferred fit and style. You try them on at home and decide which to buy. Then simply pay for what you keep and send back the rest with free returns. There is a charge of just £10 for your stylist's time, which is redeemable against anything you decide to keep. Now that we're all starting to go out a bit more and enjoy the summer, with some people even heading back to their offices, now's the time to get back to thinking about dressing well again. Stitch Fix is a fun way to treat yourself and to get to know your style. You might discover something you love that you might never have picked yourself. Stitch Fix stocks over a 100 men's and women's brands, including well-known names, more niche emerging designers, and their own exclusive in-house brands that you won't find anywhere else. You pay just £10 for your stylist's time and you can redeem that against the items you decide to keep. And you try before you buy. You pay only for what you decide to keep. You can even get styling tips on top. Your stylist will give you ideas on how best to wear your new clothes. It's not one of those subscription services that catches you out. You can order a one-off delivery whenever you like. So, get started with Stitch Fix today and support our podcast by going to stitchfix.co.uk forward slash spiked right now. That's s-t-i-t-c-h-f-i-x dot co dot u-k forward slash spiked. The police have considered dropping the term Islamist terrorism to describe terror attacks by those who claim Islam is their motive. According to the National Association of Muslim Police, words like Islamist and jihadi fuel Islamophobic stereotypes. Some proposed alternatives include faith-claimed terrorism, terrorists abusing religious motivations and adherence of Osama Bin Laden's ideology. Ella, what are your thoughts on this?
3: Well, it's hard not to laugh. I mean, at this point, the police sound like the kind of stereotype of the, you know, the bad stereotype of the blue haired university student who says, (laughs) you're not, you're not meant to say disabled person. You're meant to say, you know, person in a wheelchair, whatever the correct thing is, it's just ridiculous. And they've done this before around sexism, for example, insisting on using the word police officer instead of policeman, and all that kind of thing. But I mean, the serious thing is that this isn't like those other ridiculous times because this is addressing a very serious issue of Islamist terror and terrorist attacks and something that is a great threat to British society has killed people. This isn't just a question of words. This is actually very serious. There is a real problem with Islamist terror and the idea that it's going to be beneficiary for the fight against terror to make the language around it more obscure is ridiculous. It's also hard to tell where the demands for this change have come from. There's been no kind of mass petitioning from Muslim groups. I mean there's always been a huge fuss around for a long time around the definition of Islamophobia. You know, the official definition talks about it as being like racism and of course we've argued on spite before that that basically leaves any criticism of Islam as a religion open to claims of Islamophobia because it's this very woolly definition. But I mean, when it comes to talking about an Islamist terror attack, which we all know what that means, and everyone knows that that's different from someone who believes in Islam, a Muslim, it's just such a ridiculous idea that those two would be conflated. In fact, what's going to fuel worse bigotry around Muslims is this tiptoeing around the issue of Islamism and Islamist terror – I mean the reason why things like for example this video that went out of Katie Hopkins pretending to be Shamima Begum in a veil and jumping around the reason why things like that are seen as so ridiculous and outrageous is because in general it's right to say that we take a sort of very strong line on real Islamophobia in this country we don't think it's a good thing we don't let it slip we call it out when it happens and that that should continue But what will hamper the fight for equality or religious freedom or whatever you want to put it is this sort of conflation between the two, Islam and Islamism. And for people who are upset about, rightly upset about Islamist terror and think that the police are being soft on it or not doing the things that they're supposed to do, for example, in the case of recent attacks, letting people who have been radicalised out of jail early, not keeping tabs on them, not doing the kind of proper de radicalization procedures, then this just looks like fiddling while Rome burns. And the serious point is if the police want to do something around Islamophobia, and if, if a thing that you could do tomorrow that would really change for the better, prejudice against Muslims, cancel the prevent strategy really simple. Do something like that, that actually is a government procedure that discriminates against Muslim students. There you go. Don't piss about with this language that people are either going to laugh at or get angry about. Do something serious. Or better yet, the police should stay completely clear out of the policing of language and get on with actually catching people who are trying to plan terror attacks.
2: Tom? No, I, I agree. And I think there's a, there's a real bigotry of low expectations in relation to this discussion. And we should remember, it's not just this one story that we've seen this week. You know, there's kind of recurrently been a kind of bristling um, or even a condemnation of people when they use the term Islamism. You think back to t- the general election 2015, when Paul Nuttall, if anyone remembers him, <laughs> one time leader of um, UKIP, quite unsuccessful, as it turned out, in the leaders debate, used the phrase Islamist extremism, and everyone on the panel instantly condemned him. And it was this kind of recurring thing for a couple of days that he was, in the words of one the people on the panel that he was just going after the Muslims, I think is really quite striking. On the one hand, maybe there's a kind of level of illiteracy amongst these people who are complaining themselves, they don't recognise that Islamism refers to something very specific Um, it's a term used by counter-terror experts, it's referring to again that kind of political Islam, that fundamentalist Islam and again to terrorist ends, it's not something which is just a byword for Islam and most people recognise this and I think it speaks to again a pretty low view of British Muslims, the idea that they're going to see this as an affront when they are adherents of a religion, they are not adherents of a vicious political ideology and also for the rest of the UK who are not going to be able to make that Distinction are just going to be again kind of stirred into some sort of hatred by us discussing these issues, frankly. And I think, especially given the fact that with the potential return of Shamima Begum, with more discussion now about British Muslims who went to fight in Syria now potentially returning via this route, the fact that as the government made clear this week and has been clear for a very long time that Islamist extremism still remains the far greater threat in relation to terrorism on britain streets the fact that on the one hand we don't seem to be being very effective at containing it but on the other hand we're not even really allowed to talk about it that seems to me to be a pretty bad place to be in and again i don't think this is fed out of any real concern for british muslims if anything i think it projects quite a low view of them that they're not up to this discussion that they're only going to find it othering and off-putting when islamist extremism is something that is a threat to everyone in this country, regardless of what your faith is.
0: Yeah, that's absolutely right, and it's it's strange because it's the politically correct people who are doing the most to conflate Islamism and ordinary Muslims, and you know, which is a pretty shocking thing to do. You know, my ordinary Muslims deplore Islamist terrorism; they deplore Islamism in general, most of the time, not even in its less terroristic forms. The reluctance to talk about Islamist terror in particular is is very strange and it feeds into the discussion we've been having where it has been notable after every Islamist terror attack. The tendency is to say, don't look back in anger, don't talk about it too much. It's almost treated as a kind of natural disaster rather than a political act of terror, especially compared with far-right terrorism, which is quite rightly understood as a political problem to be confronted and and dealt with it just feeds into that kind of strange tiptoeing around the subject and yeah if we want to keep people safe if we want to defeat the ideas that are giving rise to this horrific nihilism then you know we have to be open about it you've been listening to the spike podcast For more Spike content, don't forget to keep visiting us at spiked-online.com where you can also make a donation or treat yourself to something from our shop.